Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast where two licensed professional counselors and approved EMDR consultants discuss the latest research and resources for trauma treatment and EMDR therapy. Welcome back to Notice That. You're about to hear an interview with Lori Kercharski, and she is a specialist with EMDR and eating disorders, and I had the pleasure of interviewing her recently. And I just wanted to give you guys a heads up that as you're listening, the sound quality is a little bit different because we had to record this over Zoom, and there were some spots where the connection wasn't super great. So uh, bear with me, but I think you're really going to enjoy listening into this conversation because she is rich with uh, knowledge and really important perspectives on working with this particular population of eating disorders and disordered eating um, through EMDR. So hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. I'm here in the studio today with a special guest. Um, I'm very excited about this interview. We're going to be talking to Lori Kucharski, who is based out of Colorado Springs in Colorado. And Lori, I'm going to let you introduce yourself a little bit and just kind of share with our listeners, um, you know, what your specialty is, but also just kind of your credentials as an EMDR practitioner, um, because I want them to know uh, who they're listening to and where you come from. Uh, But the topic of today's interview, is all about using EMDR with eating disorders and disordered eating. And one of the first pieces of our conversation is going to be about distinguishing those two categories and really helping our listeners understand why they're uh, not the same thing and what those differences are. Um, But first, can you just kind of share with the listeners, like where you're coming from, what's your history, things like that? Sure. Yeah. Thank you for having me. So my name is Lori Kucharski, and I, um, as Melissa said, have a private practice in Colorado Springs, Colorado, called EMDR Center of the Pikes Peak Region, and um, I have a PhD in counseling, education, um, and supervision, and I am a licensed marriage and family therapist and licensed professional counselor. I'm also an AMFT-approved supervisor and certified eating disorder specialist and supervisor, and then a certified EMDR therapist, approved consultant, and <laughs> train, I know, training provider, I know, <laughs> and credit provider. Um, so I do both basic trainings and then trainings um, on different topics, including disordered eating and body image. And um, regarding my private practice, I um, work a lot with clients predominantly who are struggling with disorder eating and body image concerns, as well as folks who have pretty significant complex trauma histories, attachment disrupt, and then dissociation and dissociative identity disorder. Um, The crux of my practice these days is primarily around providing consultation for people who either just want to improve their clinical skills and work in one of these areas, or are working towards uh, certification, um, as well as providing providing trainings. Um, like a lot of disorder eating and eating disorder therapists, I also have lived experience in this, and so that really informs the work that I do as well. Mm-hmm. So, I'm just super excited to be having this conversation. I feel like, you know, as I've talked to so many people that are using EMDR out there in the real world, this is one of those um, areas where there's just not um, a lot of conversation happening regularly around how to modify the basic protocol, how to really meet the needs of this 
population. And I think that's uh, indicative of kind of a larger struggle of the field in terms of really providing the care um, that these presentations need and understanding the complexities of these presentations. So um, one of the questions that you shared when we were talking before is where I'd like to start, which is really that differentiation between an eating disorder versus disordered eating and why that's important. Like why, why the nuance and even just the language that we use. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. So I think that if we think about an eating disorder, we tend to think about it in terms of what the DSM-5 criteria would tell us that a feeding and eating disorder is. That would be the diagnostic category in the DSM. And so we might think about it in um, terms of more um, very overt behaviors and maybe like a higher level of care needed. And we might think about more of those extreme examples that we might see on TV or in movies or read about in books in terms of anorexia or bulimia or binge eating disorder. Um, but um, eating disorders are actually a lot more diverse than those three and those three presentations. And um, also if we think about it in, in terms of only working with looking at it from an eating disorder perspective, then we kind of eliminate this whole area or realm of disordered eating, which could seem as like sub-threshold to an eating disorder. So those might be individuals that don't even realize necessarily that their relationship to food and potentially the relationship to themselves or their bodies um, isn't perhaps where they want it to be. And it might be individuals who chronically diet or yo-yo diet or are consistently engaging in, in fad diet who are constantly wanting to change the way that they look and feel about themselves. Um, and they may not necessarily meet the DSM-5 criteria for an eating disorder, but they may not realize that even within, um, within their relationship to food and themselves that their behavior could be disordered um, to, to some degree because it's on a whole continuum. And so we don't wanna leave out entire groups of individuals that might be struggling and not realize excuse me, not realize that, that their relationships could be um, suffering. Yeah. Yeah. That makes so much sense. And I, you know, as I listen to you describe that, um, it's kind of like the, the broadening of the definition of what is trauma, right? We have the DSM right. definition of trauma, uh, but anybody that is in clinical practice knows that there's a whole world of experience that is deeply traumatic to a human that is not within the criteria of, uh, PTSD within the DSM. Exactly. It reminds me of that. And, um, you know, I like that example of fad dieting, yo-yo dieting, but particularly that kind of embodied sensation of always wanting your body to be different. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that kind of, you know, connects to another area that we hear about, which is the idea of dysmorphia, right. Mm -hmm. Of this kind of perpetual feeling of something wrongness, Exactly. Uh, so how do you feel like, uh, that experience and kind of that criteria or set of criteria, how, how does that connect? Well, we can't ignore societal expectations around what our bodies are supposed to look like. And it's not just within our lifetimes. I mean, this is going back for, for millennia and, and well-documented at least for the last 500 years in terms of this idealized viewpoint of beauty and physical attraction and what's socially acceptable or not. And so we have so much priming that has 
been wired around what we're supposed to look like and what we're supposed to be like. And so of course that is going to really drive our relationships to ourselves and our bodies. And so it's not uncommon at all for people to um, develop these problematic relationships with their bodies where they're constantly striving to look and be different than who they are and really struggle with self-acceptance. And that body dysmorphic piece, again, you know, similarly to, to the other things we've already talked about can be on a whole continuum from not being happy with, you know, things that we'll hear about frequently, like the size of your thighs or the way your stomach looks or the, you know, the, the, um, your physical and any other physical feature to really intense, exacerbated desires to change your body through a lot of elective cosmetic procedures and mm -hmm. investing a lot of time and energy to always trying to be different. And then within that, to complicate this even more, we have to also look at both the intersection of and the differences between body dysmorphia and gender dysphoria, because using the definition you gave in terms of wanting your body to be different, understandably, there's going to be times where that is going to be a very realistic goal. Um, like when your outside appearance is not aligned with who you are. Right. Right. And, and, and how you wish to present the world and be accepted by the world. And so being able to both navigate when, um, when something is body dysmorphic um, versus more of an expression of gender dysphoria, and then also where there can be overlap is important too. Yeah. So just listening to you talk, there's such this feeling of no clear um, and hard lines with a lot of this. There's uh you know, in the way that most things are with uh, human beings, our diagnostic criteria is so almost irrelevant <laughs> in the lived experience of things that are this complex. And so I'm curious, like, as people are sort of grappling and wrestling with these complexities in all of your experience, what do you feel like is kind of the most helpful way of conceptualizing and approaching these presentations that feels really supportive to the therapist to feel like, okay, I know, I know how to navigate this with my clients. Um, I can let it stay complicated. I don't have to put them in this box and give them a clear yeah. label. I can be very human with them and stay with them. How, how do you kind of support both your own work and then your clients and navigating all that complexity? That's a great question. I, I think there's two parts to this because on one hand, you know, we are bound by certain ethical and legal requirements and statutes. And so of course, being able to navigate what's in the, the scope of your expertise and that that you can take on is really important. Um, so on one hand, being able to assess and determine what level of care is this person needing for safety is really important because eating disorders do have a really high lethality rate. So, so it's being able you know, to assess where they're at on that continuum um, related to disordered eating and eating disorders and to what extent are, is their body perhaps malnourished and, and making sure we're making the appropriate referrals to medical professionals and registered dietitians to be able to get a well-rounded perspective on that is, is really critical. So that's, I think that's one piece of it is, is um, being able to do that, but while also remaining humanistic and connected to our clients and, um, and seeing them 
uh, on a deeper level in terms of what our compassion is telling us that they're struggling with. Um, and, and within that, that can be tough too, because we were talking a little bit earlier about, you know, complex trauma and dissociation. And there's a large, large um, body of people who struggle with the relationship to food um, and their bodies that have, that have had trauma, um, you know, on the entire continuum, all the way from, from, you know, bullying and attachment disrupt in their lives to, uh, to what we would think about more in terms of the um, single incident traumas that could be life-threatening, like, you know, car accidents or displacement. Um, So, and we know that those can compile. And so being able to recognize how all of these things that have happened in their lives have um, not only made them who they are today, but have led up to them using specific behaviors as a way to cope with all these things is really important. Mm -hmm. And so I see it as no different than working with someone who struggles with an addiction to alcohol or to to a chemical substance or individuals that struggle with other types of behavioral addictions. We all have ways that we can cope with things unhealthily at times. Some of us move more into the disordered eating realm. Some of us move more into addictions or other types of behaviors, but we all have those struggles. And so being able to recognize that this isn't something that we need to pathologize with, I think helps us stay connected to people, of course, while still making sure that we're doing our due diligence to help them get the help that they need because, because this can be so problematic and lethal. Right. Yeah. That makes so much sense. And that's such a, um, a huge focus here in our practice. And, you know, our listeners are really used to us talking about the importance of really robust case conceptualization to avoid the need to over pathologize our clients and their presentations that all of these struggles are strategies actually for survival. It's the human creative way of finding a way to deal with overwhelming life experiences. And, you know, for us to come along and slap a label on it and to, to treat them as if um, this just sort of happened out of nowhere uh, is number one, ineffectual in terms of therapy, but also just rude. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And does not take into account the lived experience of why did they need this? They needed it. We don't do something like that just for the heck of it, because there's always a price that we're paying. And so what, what is the, um, yeah, the driving force that really creates that felt need in the person to keep returning to these, uh, behaviors Um, because we wouldn't be doing it if we weren't getting something that we really, truly needed. And that's the same for addictions. It's the same for any, um, you know, anything that looks like a behavioral uh, compulsion, addiction, things like that. That's the way we look at all of that. And to me as a therapist, that just feels so supportive to not have to get caught up in the, which diagnosis is accurate, but every single time the story is of somebody finding a way to manage incredible amounts of distress And this is what they found. And that's beautiful in some ways that they found a way to take care of themselves when their life got really overwhelming and such a, Mm -hmm. an invitation to compassion for everybody involved. Sometimes for us, it's really easy to find that compassion. But another thing I'm curious about is um, the role of shame in all of this, that because of all that, you know, societal pressure, um, that there's so much shame around these struggles and especially as they've gotten more, more uh, public, right. That we make, Hallmark movies out of this. And, you know, we're used to hearing about it now and, but there's still such a, 
struggle around having true compassion for why people find themselves in these cycles of behavior um, and how to really meet them in a compassionate space. I'm curious, kind of your thoughts on the, the way that shame sort of gets spiraled around all of this and, um, you know, maybe helps in the origination of the struggle, but then also perpetuates it over the long haul. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, and I think you hit on this um, and something that you were saying a minute ago, which is that when we're not um, able to practice this humility ourselves, we um, aren't able to come alongside our clients and that ends up othering other people that ends up othering the clients that we're working with. And, and all of, because all of us have our own struggles, if we don't keep that in mind, then that's when, that's when folks are much more likely to experience those microaggressions that are going to just perpetuate mm-hmm. their shame. So not only have they most likely experienced shame in their communities or their families of origin um, and just society at large, you know, consistently receiving messaging that we're not okay the way that we are, um, things like that, um, you know, and taking it to such an extreme that it's no longer about personal growth and development, but rather I have to change these intrinsic things about myself that are just not okay. Um, if we, if we are not aware of that as clinicians, then we can actually accidentally perpetuate that and continue to other, other them by not being able to be compassionate and remain aligned and recognizing, you know, um, within ourselves that all of us have things that we are working on and growing through and, um, and, and losing sight of the fact that, like you said, this is a survival mechanism that helped them for what, whatever that reason might be in their life. Um, and it, and it makes us lose our curiosity for what that was about. Yes. Oh, that's such a good phrase. Yeah. A a quick move to diagnose makes us lose curiosity. That's, that feels so important with, you know, all presentations, but particularly, um, with humans that are struggling with food, um, I've just experienced so many moments with clients where it becomes so obvious and clear that as we're, you know, digging into the genesis of all of this patterning for them, that food was like a second mom or maybe the oh, only yeah. mom. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and that just makes so much sense from, you know, a neurobiological perspective of the, the nurture, the care, the soothing, exactly. the comfort, um, that we receive from food. And, and so much of the time that when, when we're not getting that relationally, like you said, when, when that attachment rupture is there, it feels like the most natural thing in the world to turn to the second best option, right? The Mm -hmm. second best mother in the form Mm -hmm. of food. Um, And when we look at it through that lens, like, oh my gosh, it becomes uh, almost, I don't want to say obvious in a flippant way, but so easy to understand how does somebody end up in this patterning? The other thing that I wanted to comment on um, as you were talking was this reality of the microaggressions that people experience, that not only is there the trauma that originates the need for the strategy, but then there is the trauma of living in a body that is considered by society to be somehow problematic, whether it be um, considered disfigured or too large or too small or too whatever, uh, or not clearly uh, a gender, right? Right. Or differently able. Differently able. Like there's so many versions of this where if if your body is considered problematic to society as a whole, that microaggressions are just the water you're swimming in every day. Exactly. And the, the impact of that is also traumatic. So I'm curious to kind of hear your thoughts about how all of that kind of 
you know, spirals together to create this very complicated experience for people of not only do we have the originating trauma, but now we have perpetual trauma over the long haul. Right, right. Well, and I want to go back to something you said a minute ago too, with the attachment piece, because sometimes it's about turning to food for comfort, but sometimes it's also about rejecting food and from like an objects relations perspective, objecting, you know, being able to reject that which subconsciously you would felt rejected by or not good enough by. So now I'm going to be able to reject this in order to feel in control or competent or okay. Um, so, you know, for the time being. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of reverse, but either way it's a relationship and we're enacting a complicated relationship with food. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Playing it out, playing it out based on what we've experienced ourselves a lot of times. Yeah. 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 Well, and then you're, you're hitting on something too, so important in terms of, you know, how then do we as clinicians look at this from an intersectional approach? Because we're talking about all these layers of trauma. Now we're talking about all these different ways that our, our bodies, our personhood may not be socially acceptable or socially desirable for, for any of these reasons. Like you said, um, on the whole continuum of too big, too small to everything in between and all these other reasons, And then how do we as clinicians look at that from an intersectional approach to realize how all of these facets um, not only only lead us to where we're at today, but then continue to influence our drives and our motivation because we all want to seek acceptance. We all want to be good enough. We all want to be considered worthwhile and worthy, um, but we're constantly even being bombarded with messaging that tells us that we're not okay the way that we are. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Well, I, I was just, you know, kind of feeling this like collective need to just sort of take a breath around the grief of that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just as you're talking, I think like so many of us as therapists, you have humans that start flashing through your mind that you've talked to over the years where that's just such a lived reality for them, mm-hmm. that constant sensation of not okay to be me. Mm-hmm. And how, you know, as a therapist, like we all have our own version of that. Exactly. And, you know, really leaning into that point of connection of no matter whether or not we understand the particular nuances that our clients are presenting with, we all know that that is such a universal experience of um, not okay to be me that I think that that's sort of a point of connection that we can rely on really steadily, that we understand that pain, but then also the humility of letting them educate us about their personal version of that and their story that they've lived through. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so tough because we, you know, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be healthy, right. Or to, to improve your health status. If we want to phrase it like that, there's nothing wrong with that. And we don't want to pathologize that, but it just becomes so muddied, especially in this day and age in our culture, because we are so quick to, confuse health with appearance and size and shape and ability. And so that really muddies the water too, because we all have, whether we admit it or not, preconceived notions on what a healthy body should be and look like. And so that makes it that much easier for our clients to experience microaggressions because they're very attuned to this. They've, you know, if they've been experiencing this for, for years and even decades, they're primed to look for one more person rejecting them, one more person you know, potentially harming them. And of course we don't want to do that, but if we ourselves haven't started to examine this within ourselves and do this work, 
we're our our own biases are going to show up in the room. Yes, that's so real. So I just had a personal experience that I'll share real briefly. It was in a um, an intensive for my PhD program, and uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, researcher um, Ray Johnson. They've been no, doing, but I'll look them up. Yes, uh, they've been doing. Um, some work around uh, embodied microaggression and uh, the power of that. And, and they were exploring in this uh, intensive lecture how much we just miss our own power in a lot of situations. And that is one of the main perpetuating forces behind microaggression is unexamined power that all of us hold. And any, any one of us that has something that gives us uh, privilege, whether that be our, you know, our skin color, um, our gender, our socioeconomic status or educational level, doesn't matter what it is. But if, if there is something that we embody that gives us privilege, that means that we have power, but because of our own trauma, sometimes we have a really hard time being in full awareness and ownership and embodiment of our own power. And it's in that strange dynamic where we feel unsafe and therefore we feel defensive, but we're not owning our own power that microaggressions happen all the time. And I think that what you're describing is, is exactly where that is, is that in the room with our clients, we're trying to hold so much complexity, but we're not always paying attention to our power and our privilege in that moment and how disempowered and underprivileged our clients can, can show up as, um, especially if they've been living with a body that, uh, yeah, where they, like you said, they're so attuned to this because they've been swimming in this water their whole lives, right? They're, they're primed to feel the subtle slights, right? The lack of eye contact, the, uh, the body scans, all of that, they, they notice it and they feel it. And as therapists, you know, really paying attention to what is my body feeling and doing when I'm sitting with this person and having this conversation is so important. Exactly. Thank you for normalizing that because we, I, and I want to normalize that we don't think about our power because we don't have to, like, we don't have to think about power and privilege because if, if we're part of the dominant culture in that way, yeah, then exactly like we've had the, yeah, we've had the privilege of not yeah. having to unpack that. So I love that research. I can't wait to dig into that. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that's, I think that shows up in the counseling office all the time. And we have seen the shift in the last 60, 70 years from a traditionally male dominated psychotherapy type of world. If we look at, you know, who, if we look at who we were studying in our graduate programs, they were generally always male. Um, if we're white. To the 1950s, 60s. I'm yeah. sorry. I said, and always white. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And generally able-bodied. Yeah. yeah. And, and generally uh, cis identifying at least outwardly. Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, we're experiencing such a radical shift now in the counseling room, but that's the work that we're still having to do is looking at our privilege and power because we haven't really had to do that. And a lot of us, especially who were educated, you know, 10, 20, 30 plus years ago, that wasn't part of our work and programs. It's still not part of the work in most programs to really have to examine your areas of privilege and power. So thank you for, for bringing up how important it is for us to do that work 
because clients will be that much more susceptible to experiencing microaggressions if they're not. Yes, yes. And and so much of the time, I think, you know, we want as a therapist, it is such our heart to show up as safe and as open and empathetic and compassionate as possible. But in the overemphasis of that, sometimes we lose track of the inherent power that comes with being in a position of authority. Um, and anyway, I feel like that is just a beautiful rabbit trail <laughs> that I would love to chase. But Absolutely. Uh, I, I also want to spend time talking about the specific application of EMDR with um, yeah. population. And uh, what do you, number one, uh, you know, sharing with our listeners, what resources and trainings do you offer? And also, do you know about that are kind of a great starting point for them as they're, you know, digging into this for themselves and their clients? Um, but also just what are the, the biggest, um, maybe modifications, shifts, uh, things like that, that you feel like as EMDR practitioners, we can be mindful of when we're working with folks that present this way. So I think one of the neat things about being able to work with, use EMDR with people who have disordered eating, um, you know, complexities and presentations and and body image concerns. One of the neat things about that is that from a trauma-informed care perspective, um, you don't have to learn this whole other language and whole other way of being with your client, especially if you've already done some really good work in complex trauma and attachment attunement and dissociation. So, you know, over the last 10 years, we've seen such a shift in EMDR therapy and the field as a whole and being being more trauma-informed, we've learned a lot more about what complex trauma and dissociation looks like and how it presents itself. Um, and if you haven't, both EMDRIA and the ISSTB, the International Society for this Study of Trauma and Dissociation, have amazing resources. Um, and with that being said, I feel like a lot of the groundwork and foundation has been laid for us to be able to do this really effectively and ethically. Um, because and this might sound weird, but working within a disordered eating framework is very similar to what you might already be doing if someone's struggling with an addiction or other type of behavioral presentation. Okay. And so, yes, there's some important ethical implications in terms of um, the level of care that they're needing. Um, but a lot of what we already know can work. And I'll, I'll share a little bit more about that. But one of the things that I do want to direct people to, if they're interested in doing this work, is the National Eating Disorder Association's website, NEDA, N-E-D-A. And if you go to NEDA's website or Google NEDA levels of care, you'll find a webpage that has all of the different domains for looking at someone's um, presentations and then the levels of care all the way from outpatient to um, through IOP to partial hospitalization mm. to residential and, and more intense acute hospitalization um, options. And under each of those domains, you'll have options to be able to gather information and make a, make a, um, recommendation based on where that client needs to be for their own safety and recovery. Mm -hmm. And so that would be one of the first things I would recommend that you would start to explore before doing this work with individuals who are struggling with disordered eating and potentially a, a, a diagnosable eating disorder. Well, and that's from there. Well, I was just going to say that feels super practical in the sense of like, if we're not, you know, really, really experienced in this area, that question of 
oh God, when, when does my client need to go to the hospital? Like, when do I need to be making right. recommendations as far as inpatient things like that? So that, that site would kind of walk them through, like, here's, here's the distinguishing factors that would say, okay, it's time to make this phone call. It's time to research this option, et cetera. Exactly. And, and I would also say that cons- consultation is really key here mm-hmm. as well, because, a, you know, we don't want to be making these decisions unilaterally um, that, you know, has its own risk implications. And so I think also being aware and ready and willing to reach out to people who do this work to be able to um, to just run cases buy them and, and, you know, get some feedback from people who have been doing this work, I think can be really important too. But if you're working with someone who has, let's say, um, lower intensity presentations, and maybe they're not um, harming their bodies to such an extent that malnourishment and risk as is as much of a concern as it could be. Um, and let's say that they're not requiring maybe perhaps that higher level of care. Um, EMDR therapy, if we conceptualize how to use EMDR therapy with someone that's ready and and able to start doing that work now can look similar to to other presentations or populations too. So we're still going to do a history taking with them and we're just going to perhaps add more more questions around the relationship to food or their families, you know, family of origins relationship to food, what kind of messaging were they receiving growing up um, or in their, their, you know, from their peers and their schools, um, perhaps in their churches, because sometimes there can be like religious components to, to why we do the things that we do. Um, So in that regard, that's going to be very similar and and phase two in terms of preparing them and helping them stabilize is going to be very similar. We're not going to forget the things that we've already learned, you know, resourcing is going to be especially critical. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and for those of us that already work with complex trauma and dissociation, helping them navigate the parts of them that, that really want to heal from an, from a, you know, disordered eating um, perspective versus the parts of them that really use that as a form of protection. You know, the, the externalizing work that we're going to be doing with parts is going to be very similar to what we would be used to doing. And so, so I hope that brings a sense of relief that I can start to do this, you know, with the right care and the right, um, you know, maybe the right assistance or resources and help, I can start to do this and I don't need to just turn people away. Um, But with that being said, also being willing to refer out if it's reaching those levels that, you know, are feeling outside your scope would be important too. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. That's such a, you know, a tender area, especially if, you know, the discovery of some of the struggle is sort of emergent as the relationship is going on. I'm thinking about one of my clients and we've been working together for three years and recently lost her dad to suicide. And in the wake of that, um, some behaviors around eating started to emerge and a lot of conversation around how this has been kind of a in the background struggle, but now it's ramping up. And the idea of referring her just like, feels like a 100% no to my body. (laughs) Like she, you know, she's been with me for three years. Um, but based on what's going on, if this was a brand new client, I may choose to refer, but because of that ongoing relationship, I feel like the damage of doing that would be even greater. And so 
really making allowance for the complexity of that question of referral is not a black and white choice. There's so many factors to be considered. And I love your point about this is when consultation is our ethical responsibility. When we're on the fence, when it feels too gray for us to really confidently make a call, consulting with other professionals is the gold standard of how do we do this responsibly and ethically to be able to document, here's who I talked to, here here was their input. Um, And that way, if something ever did happen, it's not just us standing alone saying, I did the best I could. Right. (laughs) And yeah, so it's a way of taking care of both our clients and ourselves to the best of our our ability in our field. Mm -hmm. And I think you bring up a really great example of someone for whom just had a major loss. And if you were to, you know, and and so understandably, we know that after a traumatic experience, things can reemerge. So if we've had some behaviors in remission, it's not, it's not uncommon that that could come up again. And that could be a struggle for us again, um, after a traumatic experience. And, and so you've got this perfect example of someone who's, who's just experienced a loss. And then if you were to be very anxious about that and refer them out, then that's potentially one more significant loss with someone that you've worked with for three years. Attachment rupture. Exactly. And from an attachment perspective, that would be even that much more damaging. And so I love that we are moving into this place where we have more options. I mean, clients can, they can work with a registered dietitian to be able to to navigate the disordered eating aspect of that, if that's outside the scope of your expertise without you having to, to abandon them as a client. I also am a big believer. I feel like we are and need to make this shift into realizing that not one therapist can serve every need. And sometimes that includes the mental health realm too. So I feel like it is not inappropriate under the right circumstances for two therapists to be involved. And if perhaps you're working on a specific, maybe you're working on grief with your client, but there's an eating disorder therapist that's specifically working on the the emotions and thoughts and behaviors around the disordered eating, and you're you're both collaborating in hand in hand with one another, I feel like that can be so empowering and helpful for the client too. Um, And again, from an attachment perspective, it's that that many more people in their lives that are supportive and helpful. Um, So so I feel like there are so many ways to get creative and navigate this while helping the client get everything that they need out, out of their treatment too. I love that so much. I love that this is even like beginning to be a discussion and a possibility in our field. And my, you know, deep hope is that real quickly here, it becomes sort of standard practice and the norm that we work in teams, you know, that that's, that's how we practice. You know, there's, yes. uh, there's 15 of us here and we all have our own specialty. And, you know, we just got to do a collaborative uh, case conceptualization and treatment planning for a family there's, you know, seven people in this family and all of them are seeing somebody on our team. And there's a whole lot of intersection and overlap and just the, the richness of that, um, for an individual to feel held by a team of caring practitioners. Um, and those practitioners, they're not always, you know, just therapists, you know, we have yoga therapists and massage therapists and nutritionists and chiropractors. And, uh, you know, I know that for a lot of people, that seems like a dream that feels so, Uh, impossible to reach, but I would encourage you guys, like think creatively. This doesn't have to be like some big, you know, we all figure out how to be under one roof. Like we're living in an age where zoom is a possibility. You can collaborate with all kinds of people, develop relationships with nutritionists, with, you know, therapists, other therapists that maybe work somewhere else, but are interested in doing this. 
And it doesn't have to look like a super formal arrangement as long right. as there's this collaboration and a commitment to support for the individual. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And thank you for bringing up the importance of a multidisciplinary approach as well, because, because mental health therapy, while it's incredibly important, I mean, the work we do is obviously sacred. It's also not the end all be all. So being able to have all these other outlets and resources is so incredibly important right. too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, you know, there's a client of mine that just feels like, you know, the banner poster child for the need for an interdisciplinary team. She spent years having traditional treatment for an eating disorder only to find out that there was an intestinal blockage and oh. just the amount of trauma that she incurred in, in that process. Um, because nobody thought to think, you know, thought to think, yeah, <laughs> nobody stopped to think. Like maybe, maybe there's something biomedical going on. Maybe there's something more right. than what seems so obvious to the therapist. Um, and, and getting too myopic and siloed, we really do run some risks. And so working interdisciplinarily and just having those conversations, we learn so much. And, uh, you know, the depth of our practice just expands so much. So I completely agree. Yeah. So back to the application of EMDR. <laughs> In our last yes. um, it's okay. We're going to have several trains going off the track. I'm sure that, that's okay. It, it's good. I think our listeners are used to it because we get excited about everything that we talk about. Exactly. Um, I'm really interested in the, the targeting process. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. And the, the, how do you choose targets? Is there any nuance and adaptation that you find really useful with this population? Thoughts on that? Sure. So similarly to how, um, Folks who have developed addictions protocols have honed in on this. I also am a big believer that if you can go towards the traumatic memory or event, that touchstone memory, and, and hook into that memory network, then that's where your best efficacy is going to be. Like if you can get to the root underneath that and, and see the disordered eating as a behavior, as a current symptom. So if we think about it from the three-pronged approach, the past behaviors and the current symptoms and then the future goals, but also potentially future worries or fears too. If, if we see the disordered eating as representative of this is a current symptom because of um, well, I'm going to take, I'm going to take a common one as an example, a frequent one we hear is the fear of getting fat. And when we unpack that, what is behind that fear of getting fat? Um, well, it means I won't be good enough. I'll be unworthy. I, I won't be loved. I won't be socially acceptable. My family and friends or significant other will reject me. Um, if we float back to earlier times that that's happened in their lives, that's where a lot of times a whole host of traumas come up. Similarly to the addictions protocols, if the client's not ready or able to go there, or they're not well-resourced, or they're not within their window of tolerance, of course, that could be premature. Um, and similarly to the addictions protocols, you can do some desensitizing work around the current symptom of the, the disordered behavior. However, in terms of efficacy, really being able to float back to those earlier experiences of times where they did experience rejection or um, were told that they weren't okay the way that they are. Or on the flip side, they received positive reinforcement because maybe they had a medical procedure and they lost a large amount of weight. And then they received a lot of positive reinforcement for that. And that affirmed for them, well, I'm good enough. I didn't know I wasn't before, but I'm good enough now yeah. because of this, that can actually be a touchstone. I mean, that's that, you know, that's an 
example of something that could be a touchstone memory that they wouldn't have even necessarily thought was a traumatic experience. Not an obvious trauma. Yeah. Exactly. It but it's an event, right? It's an event that shaped how they saw themselves and the word. world saw them. Yeah. yeah. So, so, I mean, I hope this illustrates how really doing what you already know and are used to doing, um, is, is what we do. And then it just helps us kind of expand our framework to be able to look at this from the disordered eating lens. Yes. Oh, that's, that's so useful and, and practical. Um, and I think that, you know, that reframe, um, yeah, it just, it just feels very, very organic as you're talking about it of, you know, this isn't about learning some whole new thing or some whole new protocol, but it's just thinking deeply about the complexities and the intricacies of how these things um, are created in the first place that really help us uh, pick targets that are going to get us to the core of what's going on the fastest. And that understanding of around body, we always have to be looking for the positive shaping as well as the negative shaping. Um, that, you know, compliments can be just as traumatic <laughs> as uh, somebody saying something terrible to you and remembering to look at both is, and I'm, I'm sure, I think I could think of a few different scenarios where that is true as well. Um, I have a couple of clients where they have a lot of fears around um, failure, like not being good enough in terms mm -hmm. of academics or professional success. And that story around, uh, shaping that was positive when they got compliments for being successful, we've ended up processing those and they've been just as scary because there's that deep fear yes. of what if I can't keep this up? What if I'm not always this smart, this beautiful, this attractive, this right. love, whatever. Um, and so the, the fear of the positive thing leaving can be incredibly traumatic. Yeah, absolutely. And that's hard. I mean, I just literally had that come up last night mm -hmm. with my son. I was watching him in a soccer game and I was so proud of, of just watching him on the field. Um, so proud of him for, for the job he was doing and, um, and shared that with him. But was like, but I'm, I'm, even if, even if you weren't scoring a goal, I'm proud of you. It's not because of what so you do, it's who you are. <laughs> and it's so tough. It's so tough as a human and as a parent to navigate that because we have to just, we have to like normalize. Okay. I did, I did feel proud. I mean, I have to normalize that, but at the same time, yeah, exactly. I don't want him growing up thinking that I'm proud of him because of what he does. I'm proud of him because of who he is. Um, and that, yeah, that's very tough to navigate. Yeah. Well, and little kids are so inclined to take it to the next conclusion. I have a, four, Oh, absolutely. Right. And she is forever. Like if I get after her about anything now, she's like her mom, which means she's a little extra with the feels and pretty <laughs> dramatic about literally everything. So we have a lot of fun, uh, <laughs> but it's always, you know, I tell her, you know, no, we can't watch another show. And her reaction is, well, okay, I'll just go be alone in my room. <laughs> like, well, that's not what I said, but okay. Uh, so we, and that's just this like constant reminder of little kids always take it to the next conclusion. And to me, that means that when we're processing, um, if it's a childhood memory, that, that embodied experience of whether or not yes. the parent ever intended it to go, yes. there, that's not yes. the point. It's not, um, it's not that, you know, somebody meant to make them feel this way. Although unfortunately that does happen as well. Right. How right. did they process it in the moment? Exactly. What, what meaning did they make of it? And right. the meaning making is what is often the most relevant piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Because so many things are done innocently, yes. um, but do have a lasting impact, which I think comes full circle. to what we were talking about earlier from an intersectional approach, because I, 
One of the biggest um, arguments I hear against an intersectional approach sometimes is, well, I didn't mean to, or that wasn't my intent. I didn't mean to make you feel that way. I didn't mean to make her or them or him feel that way. And, and I think we have to continue to recognize that that's not necessarily about what you intended. It's about what emerged from that experience. And yes, that doesn't necessarily mean in every situation that you, you know, are condemnable uh, to the death for everything right. that happened. But at the same time, being humble enough to recognize that whether I meant this or not, the outcome of this experience was such. And yes, maybe their trauma, maybe this played a role into that, but I fed further into that. And I think we've seen, especially in um, media with the Me Too movement and Time's Up, just how culpable we can be to not recognizing sometimes how our actions impact others, especially when we're not willing to look at our power and privilege. Absolutely. Yeah, the the distinction between victim and perpetrator is uh, more confusing than ever. Um, And I think that for those of us that, you know, like I said, if there's anything about our either lived experience or our bodies that gives us uh, privilege, then we need to be examining uh, what power we hold and how in in absolute innocence, we can still uh, accidentally perpetrate without ever realizing it or intending harm. And there, there's all, it is such a human thing to want to move into defensiveness as soon as we feel the challenge of that. And I feel it too, you know, last week in that PhD intensive, we were supposed to write a reflection. And my first sentence started with, I get nervous every time I hear the word microaggression, like it makes my body nervous because I know it's coming. Right. And I, I, I feel that defensiveness and that's such a natural, normal thing. Um, but then to move beyond that and sort of set that part of a society that says, you're not about to be told that you're a terrible, awful person, right? right, right. But what is happening here is that we're, we're learning to hold ourselves accountable with compassion, both is possible in, in one, uh, in one body where we're capable as adults of both holding ourselves compassionate and being self-compassionate or uh, accountable and compassionate at the same time. And I think as we do that in ourselves, it gets so much easier to do that with our clients, to invite them into a space of accountability and compassion, all in the Mm -hmm. same body. We can do it. It just is hard (laughs) and we don't have a lot of practice and we definitely don't have practice doing it publicly very well. Yes, And and that, that whole experience, um, anybody that is trying to do that, tons of respect. Anytime our clients try to do that, anytime that we get invited to do that, be incredibly gentle and sensitive to the the challenge of what we're trying to do, but it is so incredibly needed. Like it is the path forward and healing in so many of our societal struggles. Uh, but it's really freaking hard, uh, personally. Yep. And I think we all feel that. <laughs> you know, if there is one thing that we're taking away today that even transcends disordered eating and body image concerns, it is what you said about holding ourselves accountable with compassion. Yeah. And those two things are not mutually exclusive. And I just Um, had tingles when you said that, because you're right, we don't have role models and leaders that are demonstrating how to do this. This is not in the uh, public realm. Um, And when it is, it's often not done well. Um, I'm sure there's examples out there of times where it is done well, and maybe my own confirmation bias is kicking up right now, but we need more of that. I would say Brene Brown is trying real hard. 
And I she, thought of her too. Yes. I thought of her too. Yeah. And she's, you know, openly messy about it. Um, yeah. I think of uh, Glennon Doyle and some other yes, yeah, uh, yeah. humans like her that are, that are doing that work in a very brave way. And so this is beginning, which feels so encouraging. Uh, but you're right. That is a much bigger thing than just uh, this particular presentation. But I think once again, it kind of brings us back to that reality of disordered eating and eating disorders is just a human experience of looking for ways to take care of ourselves. And mm -hmm. so in the way that we, you know, approach these presentations, um, because it is just one manifestation of a universal problem, it's really supportive as a therapist to know, okay, all the skills and tools at work over there are going to work here, but I have to remember the nuances and complexities of this particular strategy in the same way that addiction right. alcoholism has their particular nuances and uh, subtleties that we need to keep in mind. So does this. And so it's a, a holding both and. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that. You can tell I get really excited about all of this. <laughs> and I love that it's my, Me job. Too. it's my job to like talk and think and write about things like this, which just, you mm -hmm. know, gives me the giggles that that's reality. Um, mm -hmm. But so to close today, I want you to kind of share with our listeners about resources, both your own other good ones that you know of, where do they go next to continue yes. their learning and their deepening on this topic? Absolutely. So one of my favorite go-to books that I recommend to everyone, and I get no kickbacks from these recommendations, by the way, um, I highly recommend the book Trauma-Informed Approaches to Eating Disorders by Andrew Siebert and Pam Birdie, and they just came out with their second edition. Um, Andrew, that is, name? it's called, oh, Andrew Siebert, S-E-U-B-E-R-T, and Pam Birdie, B-E-R-D-I. It's, um, it is a wonderful foundational book in learning how to use um, trauma-informed <laughs> trauma approaches to eating disorders, as the, as the title says, title. but specifically EMDR as well. Oh, okay. Cool. And then uh, there is an EMDR um, therapy scripted protocols okay. for eating disorders um, that Marilyn Luber puts out. Yeah. And that has some really great information that's very useful and helpful in there as well. I would just encourage people to please don't feel like you have to memorize everything. I feel like the, the scripted protocols are really helpful as interweaves, especially um, in terms of um, navigating some of those things or, or having some more creative options. But, but if you're a little type A like I am, you might find yourself feeling sometimes like you have to assimilate all the things. Um, <laughs> Thank you for saying that. I'm forever telling people like, please don't try to memorize the script and just do that. Like, let yourself be creative. Stay human in the process, please. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you, yes. Especially if you have the script down. I mean, there's, I know there's a reason why from an evidence-based yeah. perspective, we do everything we're doing. Um, and then, uh, so those would be two really good places to start. And then Robin Shapiro um, wrote um, EMDR Solutions and Solutions 2 uh, mm -hmm. quite a while back. And um, I think it's been about 12 years now. I think, I think those were published in 2009. And EMDR Solutions 2 has several chapters on, on EMDR with eating disorders and, um, and some, some helpful information in there as well. Those are great. So that hopefully gives folks some really good resources to start with. Um, if you would like other forms of assistance, such as 
articles or um, podcasts, either for you or your clients. Uh, I have a, a comprehensive list of resources. I myself did not create it. Someone else in the field did um, that just continues to get added to annually. That's very helpful. And I'd be more than happy to share things that could be useful in that, in that realm. Okay. In terms of books for clients or other things that would be helpful. Yeah. So where can and then, um, you? go ahead. Where can people email you or find your uh, website? So it's a really long URL. Uh -huh. um, the easiest way to find me is at EMDR center of the Pikes Peak region.com. EMDR center of the Pikes Peak region.com. And my email address would be my name, Lori Kucharski, at that URL. Okay. So for those of you that are listening, all of this will be in the show notes. We'll make it real easy. <laughs> Thank you. Uh -huh. Yes, it's very long. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Yes. Yeah, and we'll if you're looking for... Yeah, and, and it, for folks who need more, um, you know, specific training in this area, I do have a two-day training that's approved for 12 Andrea CEUs that you can email me um, at that link as well, and I can send you the information on that. And that covers everything working from the ground up with, with eating disorders and disordered eating and body image concerns, um, specifically from an intersectional approach as well. Very cool. Wonderful. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Lori. This has been fantastic. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And thank you so much for the work that you're doing in this area. It's uh, absolutely needed. I think it's an underserved population. Um, and so I'm really appreciative of the work that you and everybody else are, are willing to do in this area and sharing all of your wisdom and your expertise uh, for our listeners as well. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. This has been so much fun. And thank you so much for putting this out there so that more and more folks can help meet the needs of populations that really, really do need that help. Yeah. All right, listeners, thank you so much. And we hope you enjoyed it as much as uh, Lori and I enjoyed talking about it. <laughs> and we will put all of these resources and info in the show notes so that you guys can find them easily. And we will see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. We hope something you've heard today will help you help your clients. Find our latest episode and more on our Facebook page or on our website, emdr-podcast.com. And don't forget to add us to your RSS feed or follow us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher so that you don't miss an episode. Please email questions and comments to noticethat at emdr-podcast.com. From all of us here at Notice That, see you next time.